0: This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, "The Gospel of Matthew," following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Well, good morning. My name is Nate, I'm one of the pastors here at the Axis Church. It's really uh, great to be with you. I'm excited to to dig into the scriptures this morning and to to hear from Jesus on a maybe a subject that is somewhat controversial right now. So I think it'd be helpful to pray, and we'll jump in. So let's pray. Father, we come to you as a people who need you. Father, we confess that the only access we have to you right now is because of Jesus, because of what he has done for us in his perfect life and death and resurrection. And Father, because of that truth, because of that gospel, we know that you love us. Father, we are convinced because of it that that you are for us, that you desire our good and that you desire for us to see more and more of what we've been saved from and just the glory of Christ in the gospel. And So this morning, we, we beg you to help us. We beg you to give us understanding into your word, Lord. We recognize as sinful, fallen people that this word is impossible for us to hear. This word is impossible for us to obey apart from your spirit. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your spirit to be our teacher this morning. Help us to have hearts that are submissive to your word and submissive to your authority over our lives. We ask this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. We have forgotten our identity. On Friday, June 26th, the Supreme Court of the United States voted to legalize gay marriage in all 50 states. And not to start off on a negative note, but I'm honestly somewhat disgusted and disappointed and surprised maybe not by the decision of our government, not by the celebration of the LGBT community and so many others. I'm more surprised at the response of so many professing Christians. You know, as we've journeyed as a church through the book of Matthew for some time now, one of the most obvious truths from this book, and honestly from all of the Gospels, is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Christ is establishing, is utterly and fundamentally different than any kingdom of this world. There simply is no neutrality in our response to the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus said you're either with me or you're against me. And Jesus has been very gracious and very clear with us that The world will hate you because they hated Jesus. But the way a lot of Christians, I think, are responding to the Supreme Court decision is alarming because it reveals something about the way they view the world around them. Perhaps many of us have forgotten that this world, it's not our home. And so when something significant happens in our country or that's not in step with, that's not aligned with the gospel, that's not aligned with the scriptures, we cannot and should not be surprised. It doesn't make sense for us as a people to be surprised when people who don't know Jesus or don't follow Jesus or our government for that matter don't actually walk in step with the Bible. That's should be obviously clear from the New Testament. And our, our world is changing. I mean, the things, things are not the way they were 50 years ago. Things are not the way they were in my grandparents' generation and a lot of your parents' and grandparents' generation either. And so many things we see today regarding marriage and sexuality and divorce and fornication and so on, these things were maybe at the, in the margins 50 years ago, and now they are front and center And as you can tell, these things stir up Facebook debates and they stir up culture wars. And honestly, we are not, as a church, interested in Facebook debates. We're not interested in culture wars. We're definitely not interested in marrying the gospel with culture or the government. But we are deeply concerned with the proclamation of that gospel and the living out of that gospel through following Jesus. And so in God's wisdom and in God's providence, we find ourselves landing in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus teaches us about marriage and he teaches us about divorce. And how fitting and timely it is that over a year and a half ago or so, we started the book of Matthew and we've actually talked about divorce in Matthew chapter 6 in the past and very fitting that, that Jesus brings us here in his providence, in his wisdom today. Like We didn't plan for this. It wasn't a, let's skip ahead. This is the text where it is. And so in light of all of the talks surrounding marriage in our culture, we believe that this has a, a lot to teach us as a church and as the people of God. I mean, marriage is a hot topic and it was a hot topic in Jesus' day as well. And this text specifically, it records Jesus' response to a question about divorce. But we see Jesus making his answer, it's very much bigger than just divorce. He defines for us the nature of marriage and he tells us of God's intentions for the marriage relationship, marriage that is according to his plan. And so as a church, if we are to be a church at all, We seek to eagerly listen to and to humbly submit to and learn from and to wholeheartedly follow Christ and what he tells us. And so this morning is a unique opportunity. It's a unique opportunity that we have as a church to consider Jesus' words on a subject that is currently so divisive. And perhaps you feel um, so passionate about your view on marriage one way or another, that just everything that I've said to this point makes you feel your heart's pounding, you're already defensive one way or another, like what in the world is he about to say? Well, guess what, it is going to be uncomfortable because the word of God is sharp, the word of God divides. I'm not looking to start division, but we want to be faithful to what Jesus says. That's, we're, we're about Jesus here, and that's what we're, we're seeking to hear this morning. And so our prayer is that we would be able to, to dive into this text, to look at what Jesus says with open hearts and with an open mind and one, uh, just a heart that is, is ready to hear from Jesus and what he is communicating to us. And just so you know, Jesus... He is quite big enough to handle your questions. He's quite big enough to handle your doubts. So if you're doubting, if you have questions, that's that's perfectly okay. That's why we're here looking at what Jesus has to teach us. So I have just four points this morning that I think are going to help guide us through the text. The first point, just as a heads up, is the longest. I don't want you to think when I say point two that we're going to be here for another hour and a half. We're not. But it is the most foundational, and so that's the why it's most foundational in this text, and that's why we want to spend the most time on it. So, point one: God created marriage. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, and this is referring just to what he he's been ta- telling his disciples and teaching them about what it means to be part of the kingdom in Matthew's chapter 16 through 18. And so, when he had finished these sayings, Jesus went away from Galilee. And he entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. In other words, what, what Matthew's telling us is Jesus begins to head south towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, towards laying his life down for his people. And because of the popularity of Jesus's healing ministry in Galilee, Matthew tells us there were large crowds that followed him. And he healed them there. I mean, this is crazy. This is crazy compassion and mercy from Jesus to heal these crowds who are following him. And sometime during the midst of all of this, the religious leaders approach them and they ask him this question about divorce. But they don't ask the question to, to learn from Jesus, but in hopes that they may trap him, in hopes that they may give him a question that he's not going to answer satisfactorily for a rabbi of the day in hopes that he maybe will misinterpret the scriptures that they're supposed to be experts in. And so we see Jesus healing people while the religious are going about scheming and devising a way to trap Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is investing himself. He's loving others. He's serving others. And the religious are looking to destroy Jesus, So in verse three, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You see, their their question reflects a significant debate in this culture among the religious leaders, some culture wars, if you will, regarding divorce. And so this is a pretty hostile question to Jesus, who is a single man, and they're looking to him and for him to answer it. And all of this debate, it surrounded this passage in, De- in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first four verses, and we're not going to read that this morning, but I do want you to take note of it. It is important in this context. And so essentially, there were differing opinions regarding divorce and remarriage and all of these things in the day. And there was basically this one school that said, if your, if your wife was unfaithful in any way sexually then divorce was commanded and it was required in that, in that situation. And this was honestly a minority of position. This wasn't very popular during this time. And then there was this other school that felt like if the husband just became dissatisfied with his wife, like there were laws that if your wife burnt the meal, like divorce was permissible now. Like just crazy stuff. If you just, like if she becomes unattractive, like go find another And this is honestly the thinking of the Pharisees in this time. And that's why they asked Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They were looking to pigeonhole Jesus into a camp or into a school and to box him in and prove him wrong. And so verse 4, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This is a reference back to Genesis 1.27. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's a direct quote from Genesis 2.24. We can't miss the implications of this and the truths of this text in particular in this verse. Jesus doesn't say, Well, I'm single, who am I to speak to marriage? What he does is he responds to their question by appealing back to the written book of Genesis. And he essentially asks them, he says, have you not read what the creator of all things said? Did you you get that? You catch the connection. Have you not read this text where God is speaking? When we read the scriptures, we are reading an inspired of God text. Jesus' view of the Bible and ours at the axis is that when you read the Bible and what it says about marriage in the book of Genesis in particular, God himself is speaking. The creator says. And so everything that we say, all of our Ideas, all of our doctrines, it comes from the scriptures. It must come in submission to what God teaches us, not the other way around. And so this teaching on marriage comes with the authority of God rather than the authority of the axis or myself or any of you. Everything we believe as Christ followers begins with what God teaches us. God's word must be the starting point. It must be the foundation for any discussion of marriage, any discussion of divorce. We submit our lives to his authority and to him. And something, like just honestly, sometimes there are things, there are a lot of things that don't jive well with the culture. And they don't jive well with your flesh and with your desires. And there are parts of your theology that maybe you don't like we submit to Jesus. That's part of what it means to be a follower of King Jesus, is that we submit to him. He is King and Lord, we are not. And so the Pharisees, we see them appealing back to the scriptures, but they're they're really missing it. And so Jesus goes back even further. He takes them to the creation ideal, how God designed things from the beginning. And in verse 5, Jesus said... And he quotes Genesis chapter 2 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus draws this conclusion. He says in verse 6 So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, do not let man separate. God created marriage in the beginning. And only he has the right to tell us what a marriage is. And so we can come up with ideas, but when it comes to what marriage is or isn't, what it must be, what it must look like, in order to be Christian, just in order to follow Jesus, it just makes sense that we need to submit our ideas and our thinking to him. We must hear from the word of God and we must seek to obey it. We must not change what he says, but we must take it and live under his rule. God authored marriage. He designed it, and therefore he defines it. And marriage, if you look at the entirety of the scriptures, is a a covenant. It's a sacred bond between a man and a woman and God. It is the one flesh union between a man and a woman in a wholehearted, mutual, lifelong relationship. Notice that Jesus says, do not let man separate what God has joined together. This implies that marriage is not merely some human agreement, but it is a supernatural relationship in which God changes the status of of two individuals, this man and woman, from being single. They're no longer two, but now they are one. They're now married. And so Jesus really avoids reasons, like this argument about the reasons for divorce, by going back to the beginning of creation to demonstrate God's intention for marriage. It's to be a permanent bond between a man and a woman that joins them in a new union and into a new family. You leave your family, you become a new family. And if we keep reading in the New Testament, we get to the book of Ephesians that the Apostle Paul wrote And Paul uses this same passage in Genesis. And so in Ephesians chapter five, he teaches us this about marriage. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so marriage, according to Paul, According to the Bible, it is ultimately a pointer. It is a picture of Christ's love for his bride. And so as long as Christ is faithful to his church, who he calls his bride, husbands must be faithful to their wives. This is why Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And this is also why marriage is until death do us part. On the day that Christ discards his bride, then a man can divorce his wife. But that's not going to happen, and marriage is intended to show that it won't happen. Christ is faithful to his bride. And so God regulates marriage, and divorce, we see from this text, was never part of the plan. Only God makes marriage, and only he can break it. And so marriage is not just merely a contractual legal agreement. It's not just a civil commitment necessarily according to Jesus, but it is a sacred bond. It is a covenant between this couple and God. But although we know God, we see this from the text, God creates marriage in Genesis 2. It's very foundational. We also know Genesis 3 exists, doesn't it? We know that Adam and Eve sinned. They did their own thing in their own way. And as a result, sin and brokenness are part of our reality. Marriage relationships are not the way they're supposed to be. So therefore, point two, divorce is a result of marriage in a broken world. Look at verses seven and eight. Jesus says, or they they said to Jesus in response, why then... Did Moses command to get one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, "Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives." This is huge, but from the beginning, it was not so. Divorce was never God's intention for marriage. because there was hard-hearted rebellion against God among the people of God, this led to serious defilements in the marriage relationship. The presence of sin in our world and in the community of God's people meant that some marriages would be seriously defiled and some marriages would be unfortunately irretrievable and beyond repair. And so God provided divorce as a solution to those cases. Jesus differs very much with the, with the rabbis of his day by saying that divorce was only allowed. Divorce is only permitted in these situations. In other words, there are circumstances where divorce, according to Jesus, may be permitted and allowed, but it's never commanded, which tells us he doesn't view those marriages as beyond reconciliation. Reconciliation. Or restoration. Now, can we just take a moment and be honest about something? I think we need to because too often we, we have a wrong view of marriage. And so, actually, why don't you repeat this with me? Because you need to get this. Three words marriage, marriage. is, is. Hard. hard. Marriage is hard. Because we live in a broken world. And it's not just the world out there, it's what's in your heart. It's hard to love another sinner. It's hard to bear with another sinner. This should tell you something, it's intended to tell you something about Jesus' love for you, because he loves you and you are far worse than you actually think you are. And so marriage is this uniting of two dreadful sinners into a lifelong relationship. And so any marital conflict is always, no matter how complex it is, is always a result of sin. Sin is involved. Brokenness. Just as an example of um, how broken our world is and what kind of just stuff we're dealing with in our culture, about I don't know, three or four weeks ago, um, I saw in the local Nashville news on my app this story, and it was basically talking about a popular website that is intended to make it easy for spouses to cheat on their wives or their husbands. And so basically from the sound of it, you go and you enter your zip code and you enter your information. And what it does is it actually tells you, makes it really, really convenient so you don't have to go even out of your zip code. You can find somebody right there, maybe just walk down to their house and cheat on your spouse. Like that's the point. And guess what? There are about 58,000 people in Nashville on this one site. The top two zip codes in our city on this website are Sylvan Park, sorry guys, and Green Hills. Like 20% of the people on this website are from one of those two zip codes in our city. And so I looked it up, there are only about 200,000 people in our city who are married in the first place. And 58,000 Maybe they're not all from Nashville. 58,000 people are entering Nashville zip codes in order to make it easy for themselves to cheat on their spouse. And that's not talking about any other dating website. That's not talking about going downtown, finding somebody to hook up with. Like that is a reality. That's the kind of stuff that is against your marriage. But there's, well, all that's true... There's also this other reality. Marriage is not the problem. Sin is the problem. What's in your heart is the problem. The reason divorce exists is because of sin. Divorce is fundamentally at odds with God's purposes in creation. Divorce is always, I could say this biblically, it is always a result of sin. And according to the Bible, there are only two scenarios in which divorce isn't actually sinful. One of those is in this text, and it says, except for sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness. And in 1 Corinthians 7, we also see that complete desertion and abandonment by a spouse is also a grounds for Divorce. And if you notice, both of those things are also sinful, which is why divorce is always a result of the fall. You see, the Pharisees, they're searching for reasons for divorce. They're searching for circumstances in which it would be possible to divorce and in this marriage relationship, but Jesus says that we're not looking for reasons to divorce. Instead, we're longing for reconciliation. We're not looking for some loophole in the law. And if you remember, this is on, if you were here last week, this is on the heels of the unforgiving servant passage in which Jesus calls his people to radical mercy and radical forgiveness. Divorce is permissible under a few unique scenarios, but because of the gospel, it is not inevitable. The cross is larger than our sin. The cross is bigger than your need for Divorce. And so Jesus says in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Every phrase of verse 9 is very important to understanding what Jesus is teaching. And when you take out this exception, except for sexual immorality, essentially what Jesus is saying is that if there are two people who are married and one divorces and marries another, They've committed an act of adultery. Why? Why is that? It's because Jesus views marriage as a lifelong sacred covenant that is established by God Himself, that is recognized by God, that is made such by God, so that to leave that relationship and to marry another is to break that original one flesh union. That is to say, it is adultery. The only situation in this text in which a divorce and remarriage are possible without breaking the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, is when it has already been broken by some serious sexual sin. So, adultery, and again, this is debated. We see this as, as saying that adultery is one of the grounds for divorce because it destroys the one flesh union of the original marriage. But we also need to keep in mind that it doesn't necessarily give us encouragement for divorce either. What Jesus is doing is prohibiting divorce for trivial reasons, which was common then and it's common now. Divorce in the first century left women in particular in a really dire situation. So Jesus is protecting them, but he's also protecting the institution of marriage itself here. Jesus does not command divorce in these scenarios. And restoration and and forgiveness and reconciliation is a real option, is the main option. It is the option that we should be doing all we can to select because of Jesus and because of the gospel. Jesus' teaching is fundamentally different than all other teaching on marriage and divorce in the first century. He's very countercultural. He's very radical. And yet, we learn more about marriage from verses 10 through 12. And so, point three, I think what we see here is that marriage is not ultimate. The disciples, after hearing Jesus' teaching and what he's saying, the disciples said to Jesus, Well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So apparently the disciples during this time have kind of been in on the conversation And so we see them asking Jesus a question, and they respond, essentially, that if what Jesus says is true about marriage, then let's not get married at all. They're seeing a situation in which God is calling them somehow to this lifelong, terrible thing that they have to just stick it out. And Jesus actually implies that not marrying is better, but only to those to whom it is given. In other words, there, there are times when God calls us to not marry. There are eunuchs. There are those who have taken painful and extreme measures to remain unmarried and celibate and pure for various reasons. But Jesus says there are some who have done that for the sake of the kingdom. Which tells us that marriage is not ultimate. Ultimate. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that there are some whom God calls and gifts with the gift of singleness for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ's work, for the sake of the advance of the kingdom. But how in the world is it that God can call some to singleness? I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to repeat this with me because. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're engaged, doesn't matter. You need to preach this to yourself and you need to preach this to one another. You ready? Marriage will not complete me. Marriage will not complete you. One of the reasons we see marriage as a right in our society is because we see singleness as unfair. And yet Jesus was the most complete, most fully human man to ever live, and yet he wasn't married. We need a better theology of singleness. And we as a church have failed so often here. We've made it the ideal that the perfect life is getting married And that's not necessarily biblical. In fact, just as a side note, Pastor Jeremy and his wife Jill are are looking to do a seminar in the future on singleness because it's so important. Friends, do not waste your singleness. There are single people here who can do no telling what that a father of four can't ever do because they have four children and they have a wife. Friends, marriage is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. And there is something bigger than marriage. And it is what marriage is actually pointing us to, namely, experiencing the love of God in the cross of Jesus. Marriage is painting a picture of that love. Marriage is painting a picture of Christ's love for his bride. And we've made marriage, unfortunately, into something that it's not. We've put onto marriage expectations that it can't ever bear. I mean, just let's be honest, like, there are so many of single people in the church who want to be married because they love themselves and they love sex and so the way that good christian people act is to get married and to have sex so that's, let's do that and that is simply not a reason to get married this is not you're not going to find that in the bible there's bigger reasons and the thing is is that the reason all deviations from the biblical picture of marriage the reason they are so serious Whether it's divorce, adultery, gay marriage, fornication, it doesn't matter. The reason that they're all so serious is because they all have one thing in common. They all lie. They all lie about the gospel. And they all lie about the truth that Christ loves his bride and is faithful to her. And So the reason God is serious in his word about our marriage covenants is because... He's serious about his covenant with his people. Marriage is significant because of where it comes from and what it's pointing to, namely the covenant-keeping love of God for his people. And our marriage relationships are supposed to be a picture of that faithful love and sacrifice. And the problem is, is that we have all failed. We can't live that out. There are no perfect marriages There is no perfect person waiting for you. They're all sinners. Whatever person you find is a sinner. And they're broken. And so are you. So the good news is, point four, God redeems our broken relationships in a broken world. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11. Paul's writing to Corinth, this messed up church who are saints, who are God's people, who are the bride of Christ. And he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And I know you're all like, yes. Nor thieves, nor the greedy. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, you were counted righteous, made righteous in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God redeems the unrighteous. If you're divorced, if you consider yourself gay, lesbian, if you've been sexually abused, wherever you're at, if you think we're crazy, we're not just going to tolerate you here at the Axis. Our goal is not to tolerate you. Our goal is to welcome you, to embrace you, to walk alongside of you. We are all sinners We are all unrighteous. There is none righteous. What we're not going to tolerate is blatant, judgmental, and self-righteous Christians who think they have it all together, who fixate themselves on these particular sins and then look down on others who are committing those sins, and they don't find their own sin as disgusting as everything else they're condemning. That is dangerous self-righteousness. That has no place in the church. We are all messed up. And Jesus, Jesus came for the unrighteous. He came for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. While we were still ungodly and weak, Christ died for us. And that means we must help one another. We must walk alongside one another, pointing each other to Jesus and towards the cross and towards repentance. I know that in this room there are those of you who have failed marriages. I know that there are some who are probably have failing marriages. I know that there are those who are sleeping around, maybe with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend. I know those who are probably are attracted to the same sex, in same-sex relationships. I know there's probably some who have been abused sexually. There are those who are in sinful relationships even now. And whether you've sinned, whether you're sinning, whether you've been sinned against, I want you to know there is hope because of the gospel. There is forgiveness Available, And undoubtedly, if you're willing to be honest, you're willing to be vulnerable this morning, this text maybe brings up some wounds, some old wounds, some new wounds, because this is a hard word. But if you're trusting in Jesus alone this morning, if you're trusting Christ, you are part of the bride of Christ. You have been washed. You've been sanctified. You have been made righteous through Jesus, regardless of your past, regardless of your present, there is forgiveness available. There is grace. There is mercy. Be encouraged this morning. Let the goodness of God in the gospel lead you to repentance. Because Christ is always faithful. Christ is always forgiving to his people. of church, our identity is not in this world. Jesus came to live perfectly for us, to die sacrificially in our place, and he rose from the grave and he has made us his people. He has made us his bride. He has made us kingdom citizens. And we are not yet home. And the church has always, read the book of Acts, the church has always been countercultural. It should not be a surprise. All of our views, not just about marriage and divorce, but all of our views are countercultural. And our hope is not that the country and the culture will embrace Christian values It's certainly not that they're going to just start behaving like Christians. We don't look to the government for guidance. In fact, Jesus spent about zero time asking the government to change. In fact, people came to him and asked him to become the government. They tried to make him king, and Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Friends, our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth and the authority of the word of God. Let us fight for one another. Let us fight the drift. Let us fight to encourage one another daily. Not to be better Christians, but to believe Jesus and to believe the gospel and to actually walk in step with the gospel. May we be a light in the midst of darkness. May we be a people who believe Jesus and submit to Jesus and point the world to Christ. Every week, we come together as the people of God, as the bride of Christ, to remember, to remember the great love with which Christ has loved us. Rebels, sinners, spiritual adulterers. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder that though our sin is great, Christ's love is faithful, and his sacrifice is sufficient. And so we are reminded that our identity is not, and whether we're married or single or gay or straight or divorced or none of that, our identity is Christ. So this morning we have the opportunity to come together as the people of God to be reminded that our identity is in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. And much like when a groom takes his bride and he places a ring on her finger as a token of remembrance, so Jesus took bread and he took wine as a symbol of his love and as a symbol of his his sacrifice for us. Church, Jesus wanted us to remember that he is totally, completely committed to us. He has promised he will never leave us or forsake us. And so this morning, we have the opportunity to remember that truth together as we celebrate communion. And so this is a time for Christians. This is a time for Christ's followers. And so if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation, we invite you to come. We invite you to the table to remember what Christ has done. There's going to be servers up front. There'll be broken pieces of bread. And you dip that in the juice or wine, whatever your conscience permits. And as we, as we partake of this, this meal together, we remember the broken body of Jesus. We remember his blood poured out for us because of our sin. And we come together and we celebrate that one day there's coming a day when we're going to be face-to-face with Jesus. Jesus as his people, no more suffering, no more sin, no more brokenness. So I invite you this morning to prepare your heart to come as you're ready. Let me, let me pray for communion. Father, we are thankful and humbled that you love us Father, we're thankful and humbled that you have pursued us. No matter how much we have ran, no matter how much we have rebelled, no matter matter how much we have sinned against you, Lord, while we were still sinning, you sent your Son to die for us. Father, we can be confident that, that we don't have to walk in guilt, we don't have to walk in shame because Jesus has taken our guilt, he has taken our shame upon himself, and he's bore it to the fullest extent so that we can have hope that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, would you instill in our hearts this truth? Would you use this time of communion as a reminder of your great love for us? And Father, would you draw us closer To yourself, would you draw us closer to one another? Father, you have made us one. Father, we confess that we are your people and you are our God. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.